0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us, whether you're on afternoon time here in the west of the United States or the next morning where Benjamin Stevenson is probably. Are you Are you drinking coffee or tea? Are you really an Aussie with tea?
1: Uh, just making my, my first coffee. So if anyone, because I'm from the future, if anyone needs some sports scores or lotto numbers overnight, you know, just ask
0: me. Wow, we should talk to you, we should talk to you the day of our election. <laughs> Maybe we would all <laughs> not be too panicky. So anyway, we are here to talk about the second book in this series called Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. And before last year, or was it the year before? I can't remember. Everyone um, in my family has killed someone came out, but they they may have come out in Australia at different times. So when, in fact, did everyone in my family has killed someone emerge?
1: Yeah, so that published in March 2022, so about 18 months ago now, and then published uh, in the U.S. uh, exactly a year ago, so it's been out a year.
0: Excellent. So it's hard to keep up sometimes when we're talking to international authors about what book publishes when, Uh, but here's the thing, I know, because I've been in Australia, books in Australia are so expensive, that nobody in their right mind would actually have ordered one and shipped it to the United States, so it was new. Anyway, we do have, um, Benjamin very kindly signed um, a bunch of books, and so we have them at the store, and Jacob is putting a link in the comments field, so I would like to talk about the train first, called the GAN, or is it the GAN? Which one is it?
1: people go 50 50 but i'm told it's gan
0: sounds more australian right so yeah. there is a handy map here which i will hold up to the screen and you can see that the route of the gan goes from darwin in the north bisects australia and runs down to adelaide so is this a real tourist train or, tra- or just regular transportation train
1: yeah it's a real uh, kind of luxury accommodation train um it was a freight train for the first kind of 50 years of its uh, existence and it was sort of the only way that you can sort of get materials from Adelaide to Darwin and it also follows the telegraph route which was the first kind of uh, Morse code signal line through the middle of Australia and then in the early 2000s they reinvented it from its kind of haulage role into a luxury sleeper train so now it's a kind of a five-star Um, hotel on wheels and the perfect setting for a murder mystery
0: absolutely true so i haven't been on the orient express but i have been on rovis rail in south africa which is a reincarnation with some difficulty because of the gauge of the tracks um of a a victorian train it stops at the kimberly diamond mine so you get to go out and see all that i love train travel there is a um another australian mystery writer called sulari gentle i don't know if you know sulari um yeah i
1: know sulari very well
0: well she she was my author until we sold poison pen press so she wrote the woman in the library she has a new book coming out next month but um sulari when she left here on her u.s book tour for the woman in the library met her sister and went on the murder on the orient express so she could write about it and and i love the comment that you made here because it's exactly what she said to me. You said, "I am grateful to the truly exceptional staff of a gun, Gan, who didn't once call the police as I questioned them on the feasibility of various murders. <laughs> Sarah, yeah. um, I can
1: so imagine- we took the trip, and i was I was particularly fascinated with the meat freezer in the kitchen. I wanted to know if you might put a body in it. And I was sort of asking, you know, would you what would you do with the meat freezer if if you had if it was a murder mystery and um they sort of looked at me a little bit side-eyed and then I remembered I should probably tell them that I'm writing a novel before I ask questions about hiding bodies on the train so
0: excellent point is the train so constructed that you couldn't just roll a body off the train to disappear off into the you know the bush
1: Oh, you probably could, um, but it would be a short novel. So <laughs> I was looking yeah. for inventive solutions.
0: <laughs> I understand that, right? It would have been a, 20, not even a novella, short story. So you can also probably see the diagram of how the car is laid out. Um, so why don't you tell us um, who you have put on the train? Because I think um, there's a wonderful cast there.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a sequel to um, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, which is stars Ernest Cunningham, and he loves Golden Age murder mysteries. And what happens is he finds himself in the middle of a Golden Age murder mystery and has to solve it. And so this is the sequel, but it's a standalone sequel in the same way that all Golden Age murder mysteries are. Same detective, new case kind of thing. So Ernest has since written down what happened to him the last time. And he's been invited to a writers festival taking place on this train. And there's six writers on the train, including him. And he's struggling to come up with an idea for what his second book will be. But on the first night, one of the writers is murdered and the remaining five decide that they've all, because they've spent a career writing crime fiction, they've all got the skills of their fictional detectives. And if they all put them to the task, they might be the best suited to solving the murder. So, and Ernest, thinks that he might have his second book sort of coming to life. So the five remaining writers become five detectives as they all apply their skills in writing murder mysteries to solving them. But the question, the real problem or question of the book is that of course, if everybody knows how to solve a murder, they also know how to get away with one. So how do you find a killer on a train where every single person on it knows how to construct and get away with the perfect murder? is the conundrum that faces Ernest as he investigates all the other crime writers.
0: Wow, you must have been knighting, not just Agatha Christie, but Anthony Hurwitz. (laughs) You know, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a metafiction way of doing it, isn't
1: it? Yeah, absolutely. So Ernest talks to the reader. He talks you through, basically, he presents it as a fair play mystery. um, And he'll talk you through the clues as he goes along because he's sort of writing down what happened to him on the train and you are part of the detective team I believe that team up between the reader and the author is so important and that's the metafictional and I love the Horowitz novels I absolutely adore them and it's really interesting in the Hawthorne books um Horowitz is the Watson to Detective Hawthorne in my books Ernest is both Holmes and Watson. So he chronicles and solves at the same time, which is a really interesting and fun thing to play with because in the Holmes books, um, Holmes doesn't tell Watson things. So Watson is writing things down for the reader, but Holmes is saving them for the end when he can reveal that he knew it all along. Ernest can't do that. He can't trick you like that. So he has to be the Watson, which means he has to tell the truth to the reader, but he also has to be the Holmes, which means you have to solve it. And what that does is, I think the metafiction kind of brings you into the mystery a bit, you know, makes you the co-detective. So I have a lot of fun with that.
0: of course you did. And we can go into the rules, the golden age rules of mystery here in a minute. But um, I was thinking, since we talked about Agatha Christie, you know, Poirot had a secondary guy called Hastings, but Hastings did not tell Poirot what, I mean, you know, those, those are not, I'm trying to remember, because it's been a while since I read them. Those are, those are told in third person, aren't they?
1: Yeah, isn't isn't one of them in first person? I'm I'm a bit foggy on it too. But right. I think yeah, I think the storytelling device that you choose, I mean the Holmes and Watson chronicling, um, or the kind of third person detective nature, um, is an important choice because it's how you're relaying how the mystery is solved and I think it grandly affects um multiple books you know Christy herself not the Poirot novels but narration is such a key facet of of several of her mysteries without spoiling them you know um that's a choice and if you make that choice correctly you can really um present your mystery in a really fantastic and and immersive way
0: Aunt Roger Ackroyd would be a great example, but for anybody who hasn't read it, I don't want to spoil by saying, you know, why I think so. So, oddly enough, by pure chance, I am doing an event at the bookstore tonight instead of home in my library with the host of the All About Agatha podcast, who has written his first mystery and is very much kind of like an Agatha Christie. And he talks about, in it's apropos to this, um, because he's 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 a ghost. He's got a ghost writing sleuth. But anyway, somewhere in there, he talks about the fact that both Holmes and um, Poirot have, um, not assistants, but you know, whatever you want to call it, Hastings and and Watson and so forth. And therefore, um, they are, they don't really tell the story. And they're not necessarily always clued in. But then he goes on to say, and I absolutely love this. He said, "But Miss Marple," he says, "Miss Marple works alone." <laughs> you know, and I I thought it was so perfect, you know, because that really is a big difference. You know, she has her nephew who's in the police and you know, all, but basically Miss Marple is, you know, is working alone. I think it's a great title for a book. Miss Marple works. Miss Marple works alone is a is a title I I wish somebody would write. It's so good. Anyways. Yeah, she sounds a little
1: like um, Jack Reacher when you describe her like that, <laughs> you know. Um, I think it's really fascinating, I think, just constructing a book in which your detective works alone. They have to, or one of the things that I try and do is is they have to have someone to talk to because they've got to sort of explain and think and, and have some dialogue so you're just not all interior. So one of the things that I find fun is, is who do I buddy up with Ernest, he doesn't have a kind of mainstay offsider chronicler. But who do I buddy up Ernest with so that the mystery moves along um with a little bit of that snap and a little bit of that back and forth that might be missing if he was just on his own the whole time? So I populate mm-hmm. people around him to fill those kind of gaps.
0: Well he does have a, a love interest who snaps in at the end, which is really kind of great and sums things up in some respects, but we won't talk about it. So this is a not a fan conference on the train. This is a writers' conference, right? So the people with earnest are writers. So have you given them different genres? Are they writing different kinds of mysteries? What are they?
1: Yeah. So it's a crime writing festival. So they're from they're all walks of the crime writing spectrum. So there's a legal thriller writer, there's a forensics thriller writer um Ernest is the non-fiction because in the world of the books he's writing non-fiction even though I'm writing fiction um uh, there is the literary prize winning writer there's the kind of blockbuster sensationalist writer um and there's the psychological suspense or kind of you know um yeah, psychologist kind of writer as well. So the idea that I had there was in having them from all walks of different crime-running genres is that they'd all have a different skill that they could add to the investigation. And what I wanted to do was once one of them dies, sort of be like a Power Ranger of all of the different skills just kind of coming together into one great detective. But what actually happens is their own egos get in the way and they sort of race to solve it. But they've each got skills that the others can use. You know, the psychological suspense writer is really good at weighing up the suspects and and interpreting their personalities. The forensics writer, he says, "Oh, I wrote a book about, um, you know, I'll do the autopsy, even though he's got no skills." And he's like, "I wrote a book about this particular method of murder, and and so I can tell you if it if it applies to the body." Um, and the legal the legal person steps in with some of the law and stuff. So it's all—they're all resources to Ernest, and that's why they're so different and so varied because they represent different um, sections of the crime writing sphere, which I think is everything that Ernest really needs to solve the case.
0: So the guest of honor on this is one Henry McTavish, globally best-selling author of the Detective Morbund series. And I have to say, the Detective Morbund is a really brilliant name for a mystery series. I love it. You just left out the eye.
1: Yeah, I will guess so. Um, I didn't even really think that. I'm really bad with names. I just kind of um, I just kind of pick you. them and pluck them.
0: <laughs> you did it on purpose and, you know, moribund, moribund, I thought was absolutely wonderful love, for a whole lot of reasons. Again, some of which we can't go into, um, but you even have a quote from the New York Times describing his success. Unputdownable and unbeatable, McTavish Tavish is peerless, says the New York Times. So all the other writers are going to have very mixed feelings about Henry McTavish. And he also has, if we went back to the diagram of the train, he is basically flying first class while the rest of them are kind of in coach, right?
1: Yeah. So he gets his entire own cabin, like a whole section of the train is devoted to him. And you're right. Everybody, everybody on the train, you know, has different opinions of McTavish. Ernest is really excited to meet him. He's a big fan. And as the old adage goes, "Don't meet your heroes. maybe McTavish isn't what Ernest had hoped he might be when he meets him in person." Um, so it was really, really fun playing with that that kind of celebrity role that McTavish plays in that just kind of aped up to the maximum um, with his indulgences and in his own cabin and and you know, these best-selling books and that that review that he gets in the book as well.
0: Well, I think, yeah, if you have six people, this is basically a variation on the locked room mystery, too. I mean, this is a locked train mystery, and um, and the, there's propulsion in the plot because the train is moving. It's going from Darwin to Adelaide, and so there's a, a sort of a ticking clock. Will this all get resolved before the train gets to Adelaide? It it stops somewhere, doesn't it? Does it stop in Alice Springs?
1: Yeah, it stops a couple of times. The great thing, like you say, is the ticking clock. You know, can you solve this murder before the train pulls into the final station? And, um, yeah, it stops at Alice Springs, which is where there's sort of a dinner under the stars, which has... you know, brings everyone together in in some calamitous fashion, and has one of my favorite scenes of the book between Ernest and his uh, girlfriend Juliet. Because this isn't isn't spoiling anything, but Ernest is fastidious on the rules of mystery fiction, so he believes that everything should play out the way that it should in a book, and he's aware that this is a sequel, and he believes that no main characters from the first novel could be the killer in a sequel because it doesn't it doesn't wash it's not fair is his kind of thing but so he refuses to acknowledge that his girlfriend might be a suspect um and it all kind of comes to a head at this dinner um so it stops in Alice Springs and then it also stops in a town called Cooper Pedy, which is an opal mining town in the middle of Australia where everybody lives underground so it's too hot to build a house on the you know on the surface so they tunnel into the hillsides and underground basically like hobbits and they've got you know just the door in the side of the hill and all around the town is the pockmarks of the opal mining sites which are just kind of 20 meter deep just boreholes in the ground every kind of two meters because they're just looking for that opal jackpot and they get off there um, and that's exciting as well because it's a very dangerous part of uh, part of the countryside you know you if you fall in one of those holes you are done so there's a few fun scenes there one of the funnest things about writing a train mystery as you say as a locked room is of course everybody's trapped together and you can sort of have fun as an author you set all your characters and you see what they might do to each other but one of the things that i really enjoy about any piece of fiction that's set on a mode of transportation is that the quest, almost the whole time, the quest for the protagonist sort of focuses on how do I get out of this? So think about anything where they're stuck on a plane or or whatever, how do I get out of it? And the one moment that I really love in all of these kind of transport mysteries is when they do get out of it and then they realize they've got to get back into it. So there's a great scene where Ernest manages to get off the train and then goes, ah, I have to get back on. And that's, that's really fun as well. So I'm sort of locking and unlocking, unlocking the doors of the locked room mystery on and off again as he gets on and off the train. Um, and I couldn't write a novel on a train without an homage to, you know, all those great you know, back to the future part three, you know, running alongside the train kind of fun things that, that, that are iconic when you're um, dealing with uh, a locomotive barreling through the desert.
0: So I have to say that this is a luxury train, and therefore it has a couple of essentials that an awful lot of modern trains don't have because they just give you sandwiches and a Coke or something. But this train has a bar and a restaurant, um, and therefore, you know, people can mingle. I mean, I just rode on a luxury train in Canada. I've, you know, I've been on trains all over the world, and it's a sad trend towards, you know, reducing the catering to You know sandwiches and whatever it is but if you're on a train for two or three days people do expect and they're paying you know to have a more civilized experience and i think that you know that's important for your book that you know they weren't all just um getting drinks out of a machine and whatever it is
1: yeah definitely i mean the bar and the restaurant carts are both sort of essential to the storytelling in the way they allow the characters to mingle um, the thing I noticed when I went on the GAN for research was it is very luxurious and it's also, it's a train, like it's quite small. There's, there's, so if you've got kind of 10 characters and you want them all to crisscross, they can't just sit in their carriages for the whole book. It would be really, really boring. So how do you kind of bring that to life? Um, and the bar and the restaurant serve a lot of functions there as does Henry's um, Henry McTavish's as you say his kind of sweet cabin that's a real carriage but it's not often connected to the GAN so I moved that from another train called the Indian Pacific where it's more frequent and put it onto my train because I wanted the location and I wanted the room Um, and such is you know for people like yourself who are a fan of trains there's an apology at the back of the book that says look I did my best with the technical details but people who like trains they know a lot about trains and so I I apologize for any any carriages I've moved any things I've added any doors that shouldn't open that should that do in the book you know that's on me Um, but it's all in the service of yeah making the characters Putting them in environments that are exciting to read about and having them crisscross in the way that you need in a murder mystery
0: so we're talking about trains um the rocky mountaineer that goes from vancouver to banff um which is a wonderful train they actually get you off the train and make you spend the night in a holiday inn in Kamloops. so they feed you in the, you know like breakfast and lunch and i think possibly tea but they don't have an overnight, they don't have sleeper cars and, you know, dinner, mm. so actually have to get off. And the same is true with the glacier express in Switzerland, which goes, um, to say, um, trying to remember it goes to St. Moritz, but anyway, it's the same deal you get on and they give you wonderful food and, you know, you're in a glass dome car and all the rest of it, but there is no overnight accommodation. Whereas Ravis rail that I mentioned in South Africa, you actually sleep on the train and, um, And they do provide the bar and the restaurant. And then there's a, (laughs) I do train travel all day. My favorite train actually goes from Lake Titicaca to Cusco and it's all day, but they have a bar car and a restaurant. And what happens is that most people hang out the back of the train. You know, you're riding, it's like the fish that swam backwards because you want to be seeing all the stuff along the side and, you know, the market, they, they take down the markets and when the train passes by, they pop back up again. So, you know, when you're off the back of the train, you can see all the vendors and so forth leaping back onto the tracks. I mean, train travel is really uh, perfect for mysteries. But let's talk a little bit about the rules for writing stories. Now you, Detective Stories, you actually quote Rule 9 from S.S. Van Dyne his 20 rules for writing detective stories from 1928, which is an American um, golden age mystery. But the real golden age rules were written by Father Ronald Knox for the detective club in Britain. And I've been lucky enough to be invited to join the, not to be a member, but to attend some of the detective club things. And my my favorite of all those rules is no doppelgangers which I see, Mm -hmm. you know, no identical twins, no Chinamen, which is probably offensive today. But basically what it was to say is you can't wish all this off on, you know, foreigners or people outside the circle. Um, But that was basically a fair play thing, um, is that you had to present all the clues and give the reader a fighting chance to work out what was happening before we get to the end. And so you had to, you had these guardrails that the mystery writer was supposed to do. And people read, a lot of people read those early golden age mysteries as a mental challenge, you know, I mean, it was, it wasn't there just to sort of sit back and enjoy it, but it was an actual test of, you know, your deductive powers. And do you know about the British Library crime classics?
1: Uh, No, I don't.
0: Well, Poison Pen Press publishes them here in the United States. Um, And Martin Edwards, who's won the Diamond Dagger and God knows how many. Oh, yes,
1: I've read. Yep.
0: Right. He's a lovely guy. And he and the British Library were together. But what they're doing is they're bringing back a lot of, I hate to say second tier because that's not really fair, but Golden Age mysteries that were written by authors who are not Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and... You know, Josephine Tay and Mar- Marjorie Ellingham, but nevertheless, very good writers. Um, and I've read, a few, you know, it's really fun to read them. They are so much slower in pace than we are accustomed to, you know, today. Um, I so, sorry. Oh,
1: well, I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, the difference between modern novels and, and the sort of classic golden age, it's one of the reasons why i wrote these books because i found ronald knox's 10 rules which are quoted in the front of everyone in my family has killed someone and that's the character wants to follow those rules and and when i found the rules i i thought you know almost everything these days um is sort of breaking most of them and that's just because of an evolution of the genre that's not a lack of quality of 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 the writing it's not even a skill thing it's just the genre has changed I thought well can I do a mystery like that and play it fair And, and that's why Ernest at the start of both books he says I'm something you don't see in crime fiction I'm a reliable narrator and I will prove it to you here is what is going to happen and all those kind of things and and I agree the mental challenge of reading a mystery is is so much fun it's so fun to be invited into the puzzle and be a part of solving it and I think you know, ten percent of people should be able to solve it. I mean, my books have twists in them, and I hope that they surprise my readers. But if five to ten percent of people can't solve it, I haven't given you enough information. You know, I'm not, I'm not playing fair, and I'm not on that, on that track. They're also very, you know, very different, um, as you say, about the differences in the pace and things. Um, it's fascinating to me how long modern mystery novels have to be to sort of meet publishing contracts. And you know, I've got all my characters, and and I get halfway through the book, and I'm thinking, well, you know, Poirot would have solved it by now, by now. <laughs> and I've got to do a couple of extra murders because because the length of books has changed. It's all those kind of subtle things that sort of change the actual presentation of the mystery. Um, But on that, you know, on that fair play thing, I don't mind telling outright clues, you know. There's an anagram in this book that that Ernest tells you multiple times what it is. I'll tell you on the Zoom. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter if you solve it before the book, good on you. It's Archie Bench and he's trying to figure out what the pseudonym Archie Bench goes with in the anagram. And he mentioned it multiple times and right before he solves it, he stops the book and he says, I'm going to give you one last shot at solving Archie Bench. And if you want to have a go, then we'll get into the finale it's going to unlock the case. And the same thing in the first book, which I will spoil, well, it's not really a spoiler, but Ernest says that people's names have meanings. And if you want to go and Google everybody's names and punch them into an anagram solver and spoil the book for yourself, write them all down and you will figure out some things. And one of the characters' names in the first book is an anagram of, I am not the killer. So it's these kind of things that Ernest will tell you this at the end, that's that's the kind of great pleasure of these golden age rule-based murder mysteries, is that the detective will solve it for you and they will explain it to you. You do not have to put the effort in, but if you do want to put the effort in, then you will be rewarded. And my book's kind of try trying- and. Try and say outright, look, if you want to look here and try and figure out this numerical code, this cipher, this anagram, it will reward you with some of the answers. But if you don't want to get out of pen and paper, sit back and I will explain it to you at the end. So I'm trying to have the best of both the modern worlds and the classic worlds at the same time.
0: Yeah, I just gave him all kinds of points earlier in our discussion about about Inspector Morbund, which I thought was an actual clue, but it turns out according to you, it's not. Um, anyway, I was giving you lots of points for, you know, for that,
1: but it is a no, clue. No, absolutely well, look, if it's a clever clue, I'll take it. It was intentional.
0: Yes, no, it was absolutely a clue. I mean, I thought it was brilliant. But here here are three of the rules that are really important um that that this kind of book follows that the reader is going to have a fair chance. One, nothing supernatural. It's not going to work if it turns out in the end that it was a ghost or, you know, a dragon or something. That's out. Second, which we've already mentioned, no surprise twins, you know, no doppelgangers, whatever. So that that's an identity switch that is just not fair, you know, um, if you're going to be doing that. And the third, and this is really important, is the killer must be introduced early on if the killer does not appear in the book until towards the end then the reader doesn't really have a shot and there was a i, I won't there was a huge bestseller by a debut author here in the United States years ago and everybody loved it and because it broke some medical ground and all the rest of it and hardly anyone noticed that the killer didn't appear until like 12 pages before the end um, it was. Mm. It wasn't. It wasn't a, a detection story. It was a thriller, so you can get away with a little bit more. But it never really resonated with me as a as a book because I thought that there was really no way that the reader could ever. It was strictly revelation, not detection for the reader.
1: So, which is, as you say, valuable in a certain sense in a genre. But yeah, if you're trying to solve it, um, it becomes it becomes impossible to solve. I think, and I take on that role that rule with great seriousness, that the killer must be introduced early and they must have a major role in the story. So we've sort of gone beyond the butler did it kind of things. And um, to do that in this book, Ernest says in the opening chapter, I'm going to use the killer's name 106 times (laughs) and You can count. This is one of those things. If you have a Kindle, you can control effort, you can get ahead of the plot. But, you know, in all of this kind of rule following and honesty, it is honest and it is 106. But this is a murder mystery. Not everyone is who they say they are. So, you know, if you've got multiple alliances, don't worry, there's no cheating doppelgangers in there. But you've got to add and subtract and think about what. Is the meaning of a name? Do people have nicknames? So you won't solve it if you control F the Kindle. But when you add them all up at the end, the answer is there and it has been there for you the whole time. Um, And that was one of the great challenges of writing the book. Right before the end, you know, the killer is mentioned 106 times and, and Ernest counts them off several times during the book, just to make sure that I'm playing fair with you. And right at the end, five characters are on 97 mentions. And that was an editorial nightmare because my editor was like, uh, I think we need a, he said here. And I'm like, nope, cause I can't use their name. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but the dialogue is confusing. And I'm like, I understand that. And I can't physically put their name in because they're on 97 and if I put them on 98 then people won't think they're a suspect. Um, so it's all those kind of, those fun things to properly address the fact that yeah you've got to have a main character and they've got to be it I think that's a really great phrase of yours that it's got to be detection not revelation um it's the difference between an ah moment and a gotcha moment at the end of a detective book so ah it all slotted together and I see what happened versus yeah I'm surprised but I feel got um which is also a great feeling depending on the book you're reading but not what I'm going.
0: Well, um, you've had marvelous reviews. Um, I'm going to quote for a moment here from the Wall Street Journal, which refers to this as a witty book ratcheted up by, by well, I won't say what, because it's cause, <laughs> by growing resentment among the passengers. And that's certainly true. Um, and then you got a wonderful review in the New York Times. And I thought, I'd, I haven't got it here to quote. But at the end, I think it said something to the effect that its relationship between Ernest and his girlfriend, I keep wanting to call her Jennifer, but that's not it. Juliet. Juliet, thank you. Between Ernest and Juliet, that, you know, really gives the book its weight. And I think that might have been engendered in part by the epilogue. But um, nonetheless, you did you did want Ernest to have some sort of personal relationship, you know, that because it's a, I don't know exactly how to to weigh against all the other relationships in the book.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, this is where I differ from the kind of golden age classics is that Ernest has to have uh, an arc in each book he's in. So it's not quite enough for me. And, and part of this is the the styles of modern novels. And and as I said before, even just the length, but his personal growth in each book is really important. and And he sort of says, you know, you don't really read about, Um, the great detectives having PTSD about their last case. They just pick up a new intellectual puzzle and then they go on with it. And even the modern adaptations of um, Poirot and Holmes, all of those, they inject character arcs in those detectives between stories that they don't have in the originals. So because they understand that the modern audience requires a certain kind of uh closed off character growth so the classics they'll pick up the new case so Ernest needs kind of an emotional growth um but one of the great fun things in this book is that Ernest, in retelling the book is often reminding us so these books are in first person and he says well i wrote this in first person and there's normally a suspension of disbelief that somebody writing a murder mystery in first person just survives because we have to write it all down afterwards but there's multiple times in his writing where you see that he says oh I'm sitting in a hospital room and I'm writing this out oh they've moved into the police station I'm writing this out um and he sort of goes well whose story is this until it gets printed you know I'm in first person now because I'm writing it and I'm talking to you but I might not be talking to you by the time you're reading it so I really wanted to play with that and whose story it was and how that can kind of come through um, with the expectations without cheating of a first person narrator. And I'm really glad that was reflected in that review because um, that was one of the most fun things to write and one of the most difficult things to pull off. So I hope people enjoy that little, little twist in the end as well.
0: I liked it very much, and I'm, I'm going to be launching Laurie King's new Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes books. And I say I, the bookstore, the Poison Pen, um, and it it has a great deal of character arc for Holmes that was not ever explored in the Holmes books. We learn a lot about Irene Adler, we learn a lot about Holmes' family story, and so forth. And it fits in with what you're saying um, that you know, for a modern reader to Flesh out more of Holmes, you know, is a valuable thing. Anyway, um, any everyone in my family has killed someone has just come out in paperback this winter. But I see, looking at my advanced reading cut, this is not the actual book. This is what I get to read. Brilliant. That you have written, find us either side of midnight and green light. So this is your fourth book, Were the first three fiction, or what are they?
1: Yeah, they're fiction. Um, so. They're different. So the two of them, Find Us and I think Either Side at Midnight and another one, I'm not sure if that's on the inside of the cover, last one to leave, they're audible novellas. So they're short, twisty mysteries that are written for the Audible platform. And Greenlight was my first novel, which uh, was published about five years ago. Um, but they're very different. They're more thrillers than the deduction of the Ernest Cunningham books that I'm saying them so um, everyone in my family's killed someone was sort of my debut into the into the US market but I've been writing thrillers down here in Australia that Audible have have um, sent out and published over there as well and I was I was published the first book Greenlight was actually published as Trust Me When I Lie by Sourcebooks over there as well so but again that was in the thriller space and I've sort of moved slightly away from that.
0: Got it. Well, since you've done so well with everyone in my family has killed someone and everyone on this train is a suspect, are you in fact going to write a third book along these lines?
1: I am. So I'm committed to the everyone series is what I'm calling it. Um, and the next one is called everyone in this something is a something. So I'm I'm going with those um, kind of the style of titles. They're super fun to write. They're, um, you know, I just have an absolute blast. And I think any writer will share the feeling that when someone's voice is sort of speaking to you off the page and your fingers are flying across the keys, you have to write it. You have to keep going. And I'm having so much fun with, with the stories in these books that, um, I will keep doing them.
0: You know what I hope we noticed during the pandemic that, and subsequently, that the section of the poison pen that grew the most and continues to sell very heavily is classics. And that doesn't include just as we thought it started out to be the British Library crime classics, and then the Library of Congress crime classics. But now it's branched out and, you know, we're doing, you know, the Odyssey and all this other stuff. And I think it's wonderful that people had time to read or, you know, during the pandemic and then decided to finally tackle War and Peace or Moby Dick or whatever it might have been. But the thing is that if you've read any of the earlier golden age mysteries, or you know, even if you only read Agatha Christie, it will, this book will be much more fun for you and much more meaningful, I think. But conversely, if you read this book and you have a good time with it, it may also send you back to try some of the golden age mysteries that you might've overlooked. So you know I think it's an interesting two-way kind of a thing here that um, um that that you've tapped into and and are encouraging. So I'm really happy yeah, about Yeah,
1: exactly. And I I think you know I wanted to build these books with as much affection as I could for the genre and if it encourages people to pick up some classics fantastic and if they pick up my books because they like the classics also fantastic. So yeah, it's just um it's so cool that people are revisiting books, you know, that maybe they picked up and put down twenty years ago, and then they've they've had the time to read them, as they say. But I think it's also fascinating how, because I did it as well, you know, you read you read books that you've sort of had on the shelf and and never picked up. How modern some of them feel, and, and how little really the world has changed um, in so many ways. Um, that the books just absolutely hold up so yeah it's fantastic that those sections of of bookstores and libraries are, are thriving
0: well you know technology is obviously made some difference in motives for murder I mean it's really hard to have shame as a valid motive for murder if you're living in, yes. I mean, in the United <laughs> States you know it's gone people ask me why did you call your bookstore the poisoned Pen, and one reason is that Poison Pen had already been uh, trademarked for a totally different company, and I had to get permission from the owner of Poison Pen in order to call it Poison Pen. But then people people don't know about Poison Pen letters, which was basically Twitter back in the village, you know, where people would send um, little gossipy, you know, in order to stir up trouble and all the rest of it, or get revenge or make somebody jealous or whatever it might be, or even blackmail people, they would write Poison Pen letters. Um, And, you know, we we do that now, but anyway, I always like, you know, the, I think that shame was a thing that really um, has lost its, has lost its, um, it's not as propulsive as it used to be in terms of, you know, a motive. So the modern crime writer may have to come up with some different ones, but basically, you know, human emotions are pretty much the same now as they were hundred years ago?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, some of the writers in my books are afraid of getting cancelled. I guess that's that's the kind of modern interpretation is the online cancellation. One of the fun things about setting this one on a train was that, you know, technology has, has come a long way in, in how it serves both the world and detective fiction. And Ernest, in this book, gets on the train and then is in the middle of the desert. So, doesn't get a phone so which is a great shortcut to a crime writer is that Ernest can't just look everything up um so I like that kind of sense of isolation and and, you know I put a bushfire on the horizon which all of the helicopters are busy dropping water on um so you know no lift off either so yeah one of the one of the tricks of writing modern Classics, or well, not, not that my books are classics. Modern, um, golden age style mysteries is that how do you get out of everything that we have now? You know, it's the classic horror movie conundrum where the person, oh no, my phone's run out of battery. Oh, what a shame that I can't call the police. Um, you know, how do you get out of that effectively to serve the story without your audience rolling their eyes and going, "Ugh, of course it's, of course you got no reception." Which is another thing that I play with, Ernest. In the first book, um, he mentions how much battery percentage everyone's phone has because he says, I know we're in a murder mystery and I know we've all got mobile phones. And just so, you know, every time someone picks up a phone, he says 27%, 25%. So you can sort of count it down to that kind of predictable cliche of of when the phone runs out of battery. So playing with it in new ways is super fun as well. But yeah, totally got to take the technology out to kind of do it well.
0: Well, I agree. I mean, God knows what AI is going to do to us or virtual reality headsets or whatever it all is, you know, but that's a challenge for the crime writer is, you know, how to how to keep up with what's happening, but at the same time, um, stay with the basics. So I think at this point, Jacob, um, come and talk to us and see if we have any questions. Um, Since we are doing the All About Agatha podcaster tonight, I will send you a link. Because we stream all our events from the bookstore, it's just like this, except it's Oh, fantastic. Movie. It's actually is like that book,
1: is that book? called The Busybody? Yes.
0: Yeah. It yes,
1: is. Yes. Yes. Um, I I think it comes out soon in Australia. I was keen to get a copy. So well, I'm up.
0: probably going to reprise some of what we've talked about this <laughs> this afternoon with him. But anyway, I'll I'll send you. Well, a- he'll
1: be he'll be way uh, I don't know. He'll be more. Um, expert than I am and you'll say, oh Benjamin and I talked about this this morning and he'll say, oh Benjamin is wrong, wrong, wrong <laughs> in the first <laughs>
0: place I'm sure he's far more tactful than that <laughs> in the second place. <laughs> it won't be the same conversation but I do think uh, I mean Martin Edwards and I because you know he's my author until we sold poison pen press, you know he was my author like Sir um, uh, has really um, I think done a marvelous job of explaining to the modern reader why Golden Age mysteries work. And bringing back, you know, I mean, I give him huge credit for the work that he's done. You might have looked, sorry, Jacob, let me finish. Um, You might have looked in the course of your research at, you know, books by people like H.R.F. Keating or Julian Simmons, you know, who are among the great British crime uh, reviewers and um, wrote, has written a lot of books that people who are into crime really refer back to. So, you know, there's an awful lot to learn there. Jacob, um, any questions for Benjamin? Yeah, Mark? we have uh, quite a few actually. Um, oh, so Stephanie asks, do you think a locked room mystery can create more of an intimate connection with characters and the specific situation for the readers?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, also, hi, Stephanie. Um, the The great thing about locked rooms is that you get, you know, you get kind of six to 10 people. That's kind of what I think you need as suspects, probably 10 maybe a bit much. Six to 10 people, set all their backstories and their simmering resentments, put them somewhere together. And then as an author, I see what they do to each other. And I think that brings out things in them that I don't expect when I'm plotting out a book. And it makes it really exciting and it brings that intimacy and that kind of depth of character and and kind of crisscrossing between all the characters. That if, just speaking for my personal writing style, if I'm moving them around a larger location, such as a city, then my characters are bumping into the characters that they're supposed to bump into because it's in the plot, um, because I've structured it that way. So they're coming by the end of the book, it's going to look as natural as it should. But in the terms of the plotting, they're coming out of the plot where I need them to in a locked room murder mystery. They speak for themselves a little more because you have all those restraints on them and they are clashing with people that, that they might not necessarily clash with. So when I was writing this book, you know, we talked about the the bar and the restaurant before, and I'm like, okay, I've got these eight people. Where are the other two? Um, and then I'd think, oh, I didn't even think about that because I don't have to isolate their location. If the book is set in New York, it doesn't matter where Greg Smith is; he could be having breakfast. But on a train, it does matter where Greg Smith is because if he's not in one of these three characters' carriages, where is he? So that brings, yeah, certainly forced intimacy, and I think it gives a lot of depth and a lot of um, a lot of exciting character beats between unexpected interactions.
0: I see Stefania. Stefania is joining us from Italy and I have to say, she's always asked absolutely wonderful questions. So I'm always pleased when she's part of the audience.
1: Oh, cool. I'm going to Italy to launch this book in a week. So Where? Uh, Milan, Rome and Serrazzo, I think um, Stefania have a look on Feltrinelli's website. There will be a tour, I think.
0: Oh, you might actually get to meet a poison pen. Pre- I mean, a poison pen guest author. That'd be very exciting, to find you. Also, try to remember what time of night it is for her while we're doing this, although it's not as late as usual, right, Jacob? Well, she she also asks uh,
1: whether or not you would ever set a book in Italy. <laughs> oh, um... now that you <laughs> have <laughs> now <laughs> that you have someone
0: to consult, maybe it's more of a reality. <laughs>
1: It's tempting, and I absolutely love my Italian readers. Um, I The books are very Australian, so I need to find the right kind of fish-out-of-water plot that my Australian characters are in um, so that I could write it effectively. But the temptation of a three-month research holiday... Um, in Italy certainly seems like it should be a good idea for me. Um, so I haven't had any thoughts about taking the books overseas in overseas settings, but I'm not ruling it out.
0: Well, I have two ideas I can suggest to you. One, Italy has all kinds of cooking schools that last for at least a week or two. Um, so oh. you could, in Tuscany in particular, also Sicily, or you could have a very small very small cruise ship or a yeah, yacht um that you know just des- from australia destination italy or lands in italy whatever it is so
1: that's yeah absolutely this. you'd you'd have to use yeah you'd have to use the water um my first book was set on a winery vineyard in australia uh which is a shame that i've already used wine as a backdrop but it was inspired by the town in the first book um is stained red because the wine tanks were on top of the hill and they exploded and flooded the town and that was inspired by an incident in Tuscany where if you look up online there's wine flowing down the streets and I just love for a mystery novel you know a town stained red is so great that everything under the ankle is, is with red wine so that would have been perfect to set in Tuscany but I've already done that but um Look, I, I love it. I love new locations. If if it's a location, that kind of speaks to me. I mean, the train was very much I wanted to do the Red Desert of Australia and everyone in my family was very much where I went skiing as a kid. It's not where I grew up, but it's about sort of three hours south. And we used to ski around there as a kid and we used to always as, go to the snow. And so I, I really kind of brought that in. So it has to be somewhere where I feel like I know intimately so that I can bring it convincingly convincingly to the paint I wouldn't want to write a book Lindley and not do the wonderful spaces justice but the water you'd have to use the water I think in some way yeah okay great
0: um who inspires you the most as a writer and uh what are your ambitions as a
1: writer um that yeah inspiration wise I think I have An amazing respect and admiration for Jane Harper, what she's done for the crime writing genre in Australia and for authors like me, both in terms of, you know, personal support, she's blurred books of mine, but just in terms of writing great books that have reached the world stage and really had other people say, wow, we want to read more of Australian fiction. I mean Jane Harper is, is just an absolute trailblazer in that respect. So definitely I find her uh very inspiring in terms of what she's achieved and um that's yeah that's something to look up to. And then in terms of style, I really love um you know I love the Horowitz books. They're fantastic. Um and I really love Stuart Turton's novels. So the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle is is one of my favourite books. And I just think they're so ambitious. Not only are they clever and well done and, and, and just really well written and really fun, but it just, and he may not be like this and I've never met him, but it, he just strikes me as someone who never hits an idea in his manuscript that he thinks is too hard and gives up on it. <laughs> He's so expert at making the most audacious things work and I really really admire that so Stu Turton is my other one
0: well he's going to come and join us in May I'm trying to remember if it's the 19th or the I think it's May 19th anyway um we've had him once before and he is indeed fascinating so and we zoomed with him um during COVID so we feel very fortunate to have been able to talk to Stuart about all of his books so
1: his new book is fabulous the last murder at the end of the world is is really really great
0: good um jacob anything else um let's see the titles of your book are so original and funny do you choose it by yourself and how important is a good title for a book in your opinion
1: yeah i think a title is really important i think it kind of flavors the whole kind of book um we talked about early books before and, and when it was published internationally and had a different title and it was, it had several different titles in different markets. And I think it, I found it a bit confusing and and I didn't want to necessarily go through that again. So when I wrote everyone in my family has killed someone, I wrote the title down um, to start the manuscript and it's the first sentence of the novel. And it, ties into every element of the plot the structure of the book is based on each family member it goes through it um so by the time i finished it it could really only have that title and i remember my very first kind of conversation about the book with my australian publisher who is and always has been amazingly supportive um, the discussion of the cover came up and 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 the phrase was it's quite a long title um, uh, maybe we should think about it or not? Maybe we should think about. It, but it's quite a long title was was kind of offered, um, and then I finished the book and I'm like, it has to be it. We can't change it. It's 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 the book. It's the whole book. So, um, and then we got a fabulous cover that made use of the the length of the title really effectively. So, yeah, I, I come up with them by myself and I stand by them, um, but certainly it's a conversation that happens between publisher and author on whether you change a title. I guess I'm just lucky that they like my titles um, for the most part. And yeah, getting them right, I think is, is such a, is such a key aspect of it. I mean, it's the first thing people see when they, when they pick up the book on the shelf. So I'm very, I always want a title that kind of has the feel of the book and how do you capture that in eight words, six words, four words, you know, it, it's a really, um, difficult thing but if you get it right i think it pays dividends
0: well it certainly works in english unfortunately sometimes you know titles don't work in another language and they have to be slightly altered To, to oh make,
1: absolutely yeah you
0: know just like the germans
1: the germans thought that the title translated a little bit too threateningly everyone in my family has killed someone i think maybe they thought it was um non-fiction or it just felt a little literal and they're like Let's give it a different title, and it will fit better. Um, and so, I I do appreciate that as well—the nuances of language, and, um, and it probably, does
0: have. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking they probably thought it was a memoir. <laughs> yeah, might be might be more challenging indeed. And you know, we should mention that cover art changes um, in different markets too. So, what you know, what may work in Australia may be a whole different thing in, like, Poland. Um, and so yeah, yeah absolutely it's so unnerving for authors you know to see we have some authors who, who bring us their foreign language editions to sell because we have this big international audience and um and sometimes i you know you can hardly recognize um the book or you know you wonder who in the world is going to at the as the world's getting more global it's easier to sell foreign language editions um, if, you know, and, and they mostly are because people want to have an autographed copy, um, you know, yeah. in another I'm country. Lucky.
1: I'm I'm very lucky that I've had so many foreign editions and they're all absolutely stunning. They're all just, you know, I love seeing all the different interpretations of, sure. of the covers that come out. Um, I will say that even in English language markets, I have been in bookstores and seen my book shelved on the memoir shelf. So people people read the title and go, oh, everyone in my family's killed. So and that must be true crime. And then they put it on the memoir shelf.
0: Love it. Well, I promise you, it's on the right shelf at the Poison Pen.
1: <laughs> so, oh, good.
0: Yep, Thank we're you. doing it right. So let me remind everybody once again that we do have autographed copies of everyone on this train is a suspect. And our dream, of course, is to have Benjamin come and visit us. I'm going to send you Stuart Turton's date. Maybe you'd actually like to travel. And then you could come and be his host. Wouldn't that be fun?
1: I mean, it's incredibly tempting. Um,
0: it's a very yeah, easy I mean, flight. It's long, but it's an easy flight from Australia to Phoenix. You know, you just go to LA and then hop over.
1: Yeah, well, when I, when I am over, um, I 100% will, will come in and and do an event and say hi. Um, yeah, I would love that when it when it works.
0: Well, it'll be great. All right. So, and when Sulari publishes her Murder on the Orient Express book, we're going to figure out something because I think it would Mm. be really fun for you to have a conversation between you about how you both not only research your books while writing on the train, but what happened to the staff on the train when you began to ask them these penetrating questions. I'm just sorry. Right. So Jacob, was that it? Sorry, I wandered off again. All right. Well, thank you very much, Benjamin. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And um, congratulations on your second best selling book, which has been greeted with great acclaim everywhere. So don't forget to order one while we still have signed copies because he's in Australia and our supply, that's it. No more books. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello.